Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesha Montasir. My guest today is Maha Ma'moun, an award-winning Egyptian artist and curator. Since 2004, she's been a founding board member of the Contemporary Image Collective. And in 2013, she founded a super interesting publishing platform called Kaifateh. More recently, Maha co-curated the exhibition How to Maneuver, Shape-Shifting Texts and Other Publishing Tactics at Warehouse 421 in Abu Dhabi. Maha's work has long fascinated me and has had an impact on me since I first became aware of it in 2016, shortly before we founded The Lighthouse. She uses video and photography to examine and zoom in on particular themes within our mainstream culture. So we'll talk a little bit about her inspirations and how she got to work on those pieces that can invoke a very strong and at times even surprising reaction. More recently, I'm very pleased to announce that The Lighthouse acquired some of Maha's work, which is now permanently on display at our new outpost at Mall of the Emirates next to the Apple Store. And that's where I wanted to kick off our conversation. Well, as a first stop, you know, thank you for your lovely works, which are adorn our walls now at, uh, at Mall of the Emirates, our new outlet. And I would love for you to come and see it, inshallah, soon when, when things quiet down. Yeah. Um, so we really appreciate that. And it honestly makes me very happy every day when I walk in and I see those beautiful uh, works. So, so wow. really a big thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm very happy that they have this, uh, that they're there in Lighthouse and they have a big audience. Uh, that's something very special. One of the things you and I discussed when we, when I, when we were starting discussing of possibly bringing some of your work and, and acquiring it for the Lighthouse um, was my feeling that I told you, you know, many artists, including yourself, that have been, had a, a high dose of success and have been known and have been put in galleries and have been put in museums and part of larger collections. To maybe the wider public, this tends to be at some point intimidating. And they only see them within those walls, you know, and within a very curated environment. And one of the things I felt very strongly about that maybe we can um, shorten that distance a little bit. And by putting, you know, artists in uh, certain spaces, such as the lighthouse, that really function as a, you know, kind of multifunctional space, if you will, and not necessarily as art galleries or museums, um, that this art is then seen by one, a wider public, possibly, or a different kind of audience. Secondly, it uh, lets them interact with the, with, the, with the work in a different way. How do you feel about this as an artist, as someone that produced this art? How do you feel about that? Because I would imagine the typical trajectory is this art is acquired by, you know, either institutional institutional collectors like galleries and museums and so on and so forth, or, you know, kind of larger collectors are put in their homes. So how do you think about your art and where it should be? Yeah, and that trajectory exists, you know, that art is acquired by collectors and by museums and shown in galleries and all of this. But I always felt like I don't like the my work to be confined to those spaces. Art is always like part of a bigger conversation or yeah, it would be nice that it, that it is. <laughs> and... Uh, I feel, yeah, speaking from Bordeaux, my context, yeah, from Egypt, and uh, uh, the 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 art galleries that exist, yeah, they're very few in number. And uh, for you as a as an audience, yeah, to know to, to know about them, yeah, it's Bordeaux. Um, there's a bit challenge. of uh, it's a challenge. Uh, 
uh, yeah, it's a privilege uh, that you get to know of these spaces and and go to them in the sense that it's not yani, something that's widely known to go to this gallery or that. Uh, so yeah, I always yani, want, uh, wanted or appreciate when art is uh, uh, more accessible uh, to a to a wider audience uh, because um, yeah, I don't have like a very like a, a niche audience that I want to converse with. It's it's always like a bigger audience. Hatta even like the subjects that I deal with in my work, uh, they are a conversation with our kind of uh, present contemporary history, but also our past. And it's, these are like wider conversations. So it doesn't make sense uh, to me that the 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 work in the end is confined to a very niche audience. Well, the beauty of your work, and frankly, specifically some of the series that we acquired, Kyroscapes and uh, Domestic Tourism, is anyone can connect to it in an instant, in a way, and yet the feeling it gives will be different for different people, if you know what I mean. So there's, I find, an, an amazing amount of depth, but the initial interaction with the art piece is relatively easy because it's an image that many can relate to, either as someone like myself, as an Egyptian who grew up there, who knows those places, who can very much relate to that image, but it doesn't mean it's going to convey in me the same emotion it will invoke in someone else who may have had a very different experience looking at it, um, yet it has that easy connection. And that's what I found fascinating. And I found that if we put it to a larger audience that's not necessarily versed in the arts, so to speak. They would have a connection, but that connection will be different. And that hopefully over time starts a very different conversation. How do you feel when you are, I mean, it is a common thread amongst many of your artworks, I found, and even your videos. So there's this sort of almost, you know, common, you know, everyday images, situations that anyone can see and spot and yet you twist it. Is that, do you find that this has always been part of your practice and something that been, you've been attracted to? I think so, yes. Yeah, when you say twisted, you know, I think what I uh, often do is that um, if I'm looking at a big narrative, uh, I often go to a certain detail, for example. Yes. And by just zooming in on a detail, that already twists the, the bigger Correct. narrative. A twist can be just by choosing a certain fragment and working on that, but it can mm. also be zooming that in. you add, uh, you, it, it, can, it can be just the zooming in, but it can also be that you do certain further kind of twists. So uh, this project, Domestic Tourism, it first started with a series of photographs, four photographs, uh, two of which are in Lighthouse. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, a couple of a few years later, the film Domestic Tourism too. So, for example, in the in the images, the uh, the photographic images, uh, I started from uh, generic images of Egypt uh, that are circulated in uh, in in the touristic kind of industry, like in postcards, uh, advertisements about Egypt. And uh, so you have the the Fuluka floating in a timeless kind of uh, space and time that you cannot really locate. It can be any almost time. surreal. Yeah, so it's, I think for many of us, when we see like these advertisements of Egypt and like in the tourism kind of um, under the tourism kind of umbrella, uh, sometimes we don't recognize those places, right? They are two exclusive exclusive beaches that not everyone can go to. 
Um, for me, I wanted to take off from that point and uh, present kind of alternative uh, images. And uh, what I was doing is not like uh, photographing reality versus the packaged advertisement. Uh, I did not want to do that. So here comes the intervention, uh, the twists that I made in these pictures. So for example, uh, rather than going to, a, to the posh exclusive uh, beach advertised, I would go to a public beach uh, that is accessible to everyone. But I don't, the photograph I take there is not just a, a straight, a, you know, straight photograph. I, I insert a certain kind of twist, uh, which is my other feelings that exist in that space um, that I want to uh, bring to the picture. So for example, the experience of going to a public beach in Egypt. Uh, there is discomfort also, right? Uh, there is discomfort 100%. because of like the uh, the kind of density, but also the body uh, in this uh, public space, and uh, uh, all of these things that you in the in the touristic image you find like uh, a couple of tourists having the whole place to themselves and being served <laughs> uh, whatever they want. Uh, but that's not like in that beach, it's not like that. You have like uh, a thousand people uh, and we're all in close proximity and we are slightly uncomfortable. And so I wanted to bring that in. And um, Can I interrupt you? What's so interesting about this particular image is it does make you slightly uncomfortable and yet they look very comfortable. So, you know, funnily enough, you know, or there is a certain, um, you know, discomfort, I think, because of because of that twist that you've inserted. And yet, um, it it looks like a happy image, if you know what I mean, you know. Um, it, right. it, and it, and it depicts a simplicity that, in some ways, we may not even find or have anymore. And to me, that was almost part of the discomfort, you know, that I do not. That simplicity yeah. is not invoked in me, whether in an exclusive, more posh beach, as you said, or in a public beach, which I might be uncomfortable for other reasons, but. Those people in the picture that are depicted seem to react to it very differently, and that brings in, to me at least, all these yeah. complexities yeah. and the layers that come with Egypt and its, you know, social strata and 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 complexities that come with that as well. True, I think it's because I did not want to create uh, like uh, a dystopia versus the advertisement. You know, exactly. I exactly. wanted to to just photograph something that exists like a, a place where, like like you see it with your eyes but then how you feel it also and how you feel it is not necessarily uh, something that would be captured by the by the image uh, I can do that if I want and like choose an angle and choose a certain thing that can but I did not want to I wanted to photograph an, a place and then insert uh, my own uh, feeling uh, about it or about the general context. And like in this image in particular, the beach, so the twist is like this, it is like you say, you may not uh, necessarily feel it, but what I did is that I comp composited the image. So I brought in, I photographed a certain spot over some time, and then I brought in swimmers or people on the beach from different moments in time, but it's in the same location. So mm. then the, I actually increased the number of, of people who are in the image, yeah. But I also, by doing that, you feel there's something strange, like because 
the woman in the picture is not necessarily wasn't necessarily next to that other person right. in the picture at the same time, right? They right. are coming from different times, so they are not, not aware of each other necessarily. Exactly. And maybe that comes across when you see the image. You feel like there's all these people, but everyone is in their own world. Exactly, is they look unencumbered, so they look happy. But the reality of it, which is another further twist, is in fact they weren't all there at the same time. So maybe part of that feeling is in fact that this lady may have been there at a time when there were only two other swimmers and it wasn't as busy. So I don't know, which is fascinating, right? So it's sort of yeah. this multi-layered, some of it is reality and some of it is not. I mean, that was a reality, but that reality may have been very different at the moment you shot that picture. But also like, yeah, and I think these twists, what they do is that it kind of, uh, it kind of gives you a heightened sense of, uh, of reality maybe, or that, okay, you, do, you, you, you use a certain tool or twist uh, in order to bring out something that would not necessarily show if you took a straight picture, right? So like you use a certain, there are certain things that you do to, okay, there's a reality that is not photographable. So then you do a certain little twist and then that reality becomes more apparent. So these are the little twists that uh, I think uh, I try to do is there's something, it's not very visible, but if you make a certain change, it becomes visible in a way that was not possible before. What made you go back a few years later, which is somewhat unusual, and take up the same um, body of work essentially, but now in video form with yet another new twist to it. I mean, I would imagine typically an artist would sort of, you know, finish a body of work and then move on to the next thing. But you went back to revisit it, but now in, in video form. And, and I mean, the, the kind of thread is there, but it's a, a whole new twist that you've put in the videos. And obviously we're going to put all of this in the show notes so the listeners can, can, can watch the videos and, and look at the images. But walk us through your thought process of going back and deciding to revisit it. What made you do that? In the, in the domestic tourism uh, photographic series, I did not have like the pyramids or like, so it's the kind of obvious, uh, <laughs> obvious location of tourism that was not, uh, that I did not uh, choose to go to in that series. And, uh, and that stayed with me that, okay, there's this, the, the, the site par excellence that has not been visited in this series. And, uh, but I was, not necessarily intending to, to work on it later, but then uh, I was just watching a film, an Egyptian film, and there was a scene where you had uh, a couple uh, going, having, uh, having uh, La Muneta, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they're sitting, and the pyramid is actually kind of sitting in between them. They're like, the backdrop of the pyramid is so present, and I, but it's, it's just a backdrop. But for me, I felt, okay, I mean, uh, it's not just a, back, a backdrop. There is something, there is an importance to going to that site, but it's not necessarily very clear in the film, but there is something there that, that for which the director decided, okay, I'm going to shoot this, uh, this shot in front of the pyramids. And uh, this subliminal thing, sometimes it's intentional. There is some, you can read it in the narrative of the film that there is a, why did they go to the pyramids to do this scene? But sometimes, it's not necessarily that intentional or there's not necessarily a, a subtext that the director wants to bring in, but it is brought in <laughs> somehow. 
So I started to, uh, to get curious about how the pyramids are represented in cinema. So it's a particular lens, like how the pyramids are represented in the cinematic narrative, because I felt, okay, uh, the, the, the touristic kind of narrative is put aside a little bit, or it's not the, the main focus. There is, a, every film has a different story and a different trajectory and all of that, but uh, I wanted to see how the pyramids are weaved into uh, an Egyptian narrative. These films are meant for an Egyptian audience. They're not meant to advertise Egypt abroad. Uh, so, so then how do the pyramids come in and uh, what are the meanings? How do the pyramids uh, figure in um, yeah, local Egyptian uh, narrative? Local culture yeah. over decades, right? Because you are really kind of contrasting a multi-decade evolution or devolution or whatever you may want to call it mm -hmm. of with the backdrop of the pyramids, you know, and the politics of that era uh, and the, 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 the intended audience of that era and you see a very visible change over, you know, each in each sort of decade. Right. So then, so when I started getting interested in this subject, I started, of course, researching, like looking, uh, asking uh, friends, uh, like if they remember, what films do they remember that have a, a scene shot in front of the pyramids? And I started, uh, you know, compiling uh, lists of films that I watched and, and, what what becomes uh, clear when you see like you you see certain genres emerging. So sometimes the pyramids uh, appears in a scene, and it's uh, the subtext is um, maybe timelessness, eternity, or you know you have uh, Abdul Halim Hafiz. He's dying young, uh, and he goes on a picnic with his uh, with his lover, and uh, that's the what they talk about is about health and longevity and dying young and that's the subtext, but in front of the pyramids as this kind of very long lived uh, uh, monument, uh, you have other like, and there are other genres. There's like the genre of uh, going to the pyramids um, and lamenting, you know, there's like these lamentation scenes, I call them, where you kind of, uh, uh, you kind of um, talk about how the present is uh, corrupt and how glorious the past was, for example, it comes in different variations. So there were these different genres and the, what these different genres reflect uh, are the different episodes in kind of both in, in Egyptian contemporary history, but also in cinematic history as it moves from, let's say, uh, light comedy uh, to uh, kind of uh, realism uh, and, uh, and getting more involved in the kind of economic and political uh, traumas of the 80s and 90s towards uh, a different twist. And so there is a, by looking at these different scenes, you see a change in how uh, Egyptian history is narrated um, or the different episodes in, in Egyptian history, but you also see uh, a development in, uh, in cinema, uh, in cinematic history and how uh, it moved from one kind of, uh, um, language to another and uh, this was interesting uh, for me so I just chose in the, the scenes that for those who do not know the film the film in the end is like a, a composite of scenes uh, that I've selected from a wide range of, uh, of films uh, from the 50s up till 
uh, the 2000s. I think 2005 yeah. or 2007 was the, the last scene I chose. And when you see that, like these scenes uh, together on a timeline, uh, what becomes kind of clear, I hope, is that, okay, you have this uh, constant, uh, the, the pyramid, but then you have uh, changing symbolisms or changing ways, uh, changing, changing narratives, or you see how the pyramids are used for, to, to convey different meanings throughout time. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk about Maha and her process and whether 2020 has had an impact on how she thinks about her future work, right after the short break. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our friends at Monviso, one of our sponsors who make this show possible. Monviso is founded by an Italian entrepreneur right here in Dubai and has evolved into one of the region's most popular mineral waters sourced directly from the Italian Alps. We immediately connected with the Monvisio's team vision and how giving back is such an integral part of their mission. Through their extensive recycling program and their Take Water, Give Life initiative, proceeds from every bottle of water sold is donated to Al Jalila Foundation to support its education and research. So stock up on still or mineral water by using our exclusive Monviso discount code, Lighthouse10, which you can redeem at store.monviso.com. Once again, the code is Lighthouse10, L-I-G-H-T-H-O-U-S-E-10. Welcome back. You're listening to my conversation with award-winning artist and curator, Maha Ma'moun. I think this takes... Uh, holds particular importance at the moment where both in Egypt, but also in the Gulf and at least in the Middle East at large, you have this sort of large, you know, um, attempt, you know, very, very ambitious attempt to build museums and, and art institutes and others that are sort of preserving heritage and redisplaying pieces of art and our history and so on. I'm talking about the overall region, because I think that question of what's put in and what's left out has a special resonance when you start thinking about, you know, a new generation that will only see what's obviously on display. And um, so, I mean, do you feel as an artist that is sort of almost part of your responsibility is to docu document both the celebrated and the discarded? Because there's definitely an element of discarded things in a lot of your videos and your work, you know, and almost to the point that it starts veering on the absurd in some cases, you know, where, you know, which I, which I loved, but do you feel that is something that you, you know, want to document and highlight consciously or is it a subconscious thing? So in terms of like the, the building of museums uh, and like these kind of uh, huge venues uh, that, uh, deal with uh, with the um, politics of representation and and all of this uh, in Egypt we don't have that right we don't ha this move has not necessarily uh, happened in Egypt where there is like this move to create there is in a way but it's oh, the new Egyptian museum I mean that's what I came to mind right <laughs> you're right here in the Gulf you're looking more contemporary obviously and you know maybe the heritage is different but the new Egyptian museum to me is very much part of that you know, uh, the current march and all of those displays that you're seeing is very much part of, you know, showcasing, you know, highlighting, emphasizing certain elements 
Um, at least that's yeah, how I, I perceived it. Yeah, that's true. But you can, I can say like in the, for, for example, domestic tourism too, the film, I wanted to take the pyramids outside a bit uh, of the official kind of uh, uh, overbearing narrative in which the, the, the pyramids in one way or another throughout these films is kind of a representation of Egypt uh, and more precisely of Egypt, the nation state, rather than Egypt, the ancient, like, uh, you know, history. With all its, uh, with all of its uh, different kind of uh, philosophies, science, uh, religions, all of that is taken out of the picture. And for me, if we talk about the new Egyptian museum, I would say this again. This this um, focus uh, is on uh, nation building, nation. Hundred uh, percent. You know, the nation state celebrating it, uh, exporting it. Uh, you know, all of this. And I'm sure a lot is still left out of the picture. Uh, the complexity of this history is, is taken out of the picture. You want to freeze that history, like take a snapshot of the glorious ancient Egyptian uh, civilization and history and package it and present it, which is great because there's a lot to be seen and learned. But you, can, you know that the, it's a kind of very uh, particular lens through which this is looked at and presented. In my work, there is um, this interest in platforms, right? In sharing the work with a larger audience. It's an interest in public space, you can say. And how to expand, uh, to expand this, 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 this space, this public space, and who can be part of it and what can be part of it. And this also, uh, I think, is something that is very uh, integral to this uh, to the publishing project that I am uh, part of. That, exactly. Yeah, that me and Ala Yunus uh, together, we formed this uh, publishing initiative uh, called Kaifate. And uh, it uh, started in 2012, 2013. Uh, and uh, again, our interest uh, in that came from our interest, uh, from our experience as artists and curators, our experience in the exclusivity of certain art spaces and of, us, of, of access to a, to a wider uh, public, right? Uh, so we felt, okay, maybe, maybe uh, uh, how do we get out of this? Uh, we don't want- We don't want to be in that box. We don't want to be in that bo box only. <laughs> only, yeah, yeah. No, Akid, you, you definitely want to be, to some extent you need to be in that box, um, yeah. But, but yeah, you want to but, be able uh, to show a multitude of, of platforms and dimensions to right. the kind of work. Like the box doesn't have to be that small. Yeah. <laughs> It yeah. doesn't have to be uh, that exclusive. The box but but, but uh, can I just be uh, a bit cynical here for a second? As an artist, I mean, as an artist that ultimately, you know, sells her art, mm -hmm. doesn't it, uh, isn't it useful for it to actually be very exclusive? In fact, the more exclusive, you know, the more rarefied, the more sought after it is. So are you... I mean, would one, could one argue cynically, okay, from a commercial standpoint, that you sort of then shoot yourself in the foot in a way because you demystify the, the you know, that sort of rarefied air that comes with art and artists and artworks. 
by mm-hmm. sort of saying, you know what, I'm going to create a platform that's far more accessible. Isn't the whole point of it being exclusive and elite, which is why commercially it, you know, sort of uh, uh, over time increases in value. True. I think there is an element of shooting oneself in the foot. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, all the time. Uh, <laughs> we and, all do. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like my films, for example, I have them uh, and the films are sold, of course, and that's important uh, for me. But I also have them uh, open access on Vimeo, for example. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that. I noticed yeah. that. And I was going to bring this up again. Exactly. Um, so you seem to, and, I, and I, I would like to say that this really shows the kind of confidence you have. You seem to be comfortable in coexisting those two worlds. In other words, feeling that the works speak for themselves. They have their own inherent value. Collectors, buyers, etc., will value them. But it doesn't mean you should try to make them overly exclusive or, you know, um, just present them to a particular niche audience. Exactly. I think one can play with these two registers, right? Uh, of the, ex- the uh, exclusivity or like the rarefied uh, uh, thing about art, but also uh, play the other register too. And this can be in, in like by making different works, one that is meant to be, <laughs> uh, to have this aura of, of exclusivity and then another uh, track that is not that. Um, 100%. How does Kaifate factor into this? Who was the intended audience for this when you and Alaa started uh, launching those series? So the intended audience uh, was a mixed audience. Uh, also, the intended uh, authors that we would invite yeah. to this uh, series were also mixed. So the idea was to get out of, uh, try to get out of this box. Uh, like we as artists uh, encounter a lot of great uh authors who are uh, um, sometimes uh, you come across them in the field of art and uh, the, the expanded programs that happen around art and uh, we found that okay I mean these these uh, these authors are not necessarily uh, you know um, unintelligible for others you know they're not necessarily that exclusive in their in in, uh, in their language or or so we wanted to, and then there are other authors who are have more of exposure in the mainstream uh, and who are not necessarily uh, seen or taken with the same seriousness or, or they're, not, they're not viewed in, and like there's this division between like certain circles cir- that are kept apart. And we felt we'd like to bring uh, a different, uh, like a variety of authors who don't necessarily uh, all inhabit the same uh, the same circles of production and circulation and all of this to bring them uh, in the same series but also by doing that uh, also bring like a mixed readership to this uh, to this series so we commission authors that's what we do we kind of we have a, a certain sensibility that is not necessarily that outspoken or like that rigid uh, or clear to us but we do share a sensibility in who you'd like to in to invite to the series to 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 write something for Kaifate, uh, and once we uh, agree on on someone, we we start a conversation with that author, and we are very clear in saying we would like uh, to invite you to propose a question because the Kaifate series is like a how-to series. Mm. 
we would like you to propose a question that you think is important, pertinent to the moment. And we would like you to keep, to address a general audience, to keep a general audience in mind. Uh, and this sometimes does something, it does change. Sometimes, I don't know to what extent, but sometimes, for example, uh, the reaction to that uh, request of keeping a general audience in mind opens up certain venues uh, or topics that they would not necessarily have, have gone to. So, for example, a writer who is uh, mostly uh, writes uh, political opinion pieces, for example, uh, that are published in uh, print or online uh, newspaper uh, kind of news outlets, uh, chose to write about dreams, about his, uh, his kind of uh, lucid dream uh, <laughs> uh, life and uh, how he uh, interprets them or what comes into those dreams and whatnot. And this is like I'm referring to How to Remember Your Dreams by Amre, that is an Egyptian writer. Yes. So that was interesting to see uh, what this, when you, when you put this thing at, at the forefront that uh, you are addressing a general public, certain, it may be certain things happen. People like we wanted part of the things that would happen is that people would start uh, writing, like not use certain kind of, you know, um, uh, terminology that is no. exclusive or. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that they, they cannot hide behind the terminologies and the, uh, the kind of big words that a lot of times yeah. you feel sort of, you know, uh, and and when you start this conversation with a potential author, is this a back and forth or is this, you know, please write something, send it back to us, we'll edit it and then publish it. I mean, are you using this platform as part of having conversation with those authors or is it simply you just being a pub, literally a publishing platform to put it out there? No, there is a conversation for sure. Uh, and uh, the extent of the conversation or how, yeah, the extent of the conversation differs, of course, according to yeah, every author. Depending, yeah. But there is uh, like always uh, in the beginning, a back and forth. So we kind of understand the, we are on the same page regarding the parameters. The format, the language, uh, the subject, uh, all of that until we get to that point. Some authors like to keep this going, this back and forth throughout. So we kind of get to see uh, different stages of the work as it develops and we discuss it. And, uh, and some authors, after we have these initial conversations, then come back with a, with a finished text, which we, of course, again, uh, have questions about or not, uh, a conversation that happens after, after the finished kind of text for uh, clarifications or things. But uh, conversation is definitely a part of the process. That's why so far we have uh, every, every uh, monograph that we've published uh, has been something that has developed in conversation somehow. And, like we have not been able to, uh, sometimes uh, we, get, uh, we get proposals, right? Mm. And some so far, this has not really succeeded with us because it has only been in conversation, not has always, sort of calling you and being like, uh, "How do you open a restaurant?" You know, here you go, and <laughs> boom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not hinting, by the way. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> Has this um, influenced the rest of your practice? Have you found that some of those conversations are spilling over in some of your other endeavors, whether it's, you know, uh, photography, video, or other kind of, you know, multidisciplinary works that you do? Or, or is that sort of siloed in your, in your mind? 
No, it has spilled over, not, not necessarily. Um, and of course, I'm sure like all of these conversations, they leave something uh, behind beyond the, the finished uh, book. But uh, the conversation that is being uh, kind of enriched throughout this process is this conversation about uh, publishing as a subject um, and as a space that uh, is fought over. over. <laughs> and uh, yeah. this interest in alternative publishing, right? Uh, yeah. The different ways, like how do you, if you have, uh, and this, yeah, connects to art as well. Like if you have... Um, Uh, a, a, mar a public space that is completely taken over by uh, for-profit uh, publishing uh, houses. Uh, and uh, uh, as, an, as a result of that, a certain codified kind of genres that are more sellable or names that are more sellable or, or safe or, you know. So there's all of these, uh, this codification of, uh, and like tightening of, access to this to this public space that happens and uh again on on the fringes on the margin of this is all the other voices that do not have they write in a different way that is not sellable uh their names are a bit uh, <laughs> either unknown or their question marks about them all of these uh things that are happening on, on the margin Uh, become uh, of interest and like of how I'm, again navigating this 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 uh, this line separating uh, the, the the what is allowed um, public space and what is not what is allowed uh, the exclusive space of the gallery and what is not so it's always these kind of boundaries uh, that uh, that uh, one lingers on whether in publishing or in the artistic practice so this is something that is always the kind of developing and you get to, I get to learn of, uh, as I go through this research of different kinds of figures that were very interesting in, in recent history in Egypt that we do not, did not necessarily look at so much. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, and also especially like the, the when, when kind of uh, uh, there is a kind of interconnection between uh, art and publishing And there's an irony, right? Because uh, uh, in a way, there are restrictions and censorship and all of that, of course. And in another way, an explosion of platforms, you know, so offline, online. So you would have thought that with the kind of proliferation of platforms, yeah. there'll be much more of an enriched dialogue. And yet that is being clamped down even more. Um, how do you feel as a kind of more multidisciplinary artist, which is fascinating? I mean, you know, A couple of a while back, I had one of my conversations on a podcast with a gallerist uh, here in Dubai, and we were talking about Hassan Sharif. And, you know, as part of Hassan's practice, I mean, he was also publishing and writing and part of a, a number of, of groups, as you all well know. And he also was a cartoonist for a number of years for a local newspaper and then completely gave up being cartoonist. And, you know, and people sometimes are surprised when they see this because they see him as this very sort of conceptual artist, is very avant-garde. And, and those things don't necessarily, um, uh, they go hand in hand in many ways. So clearly when I look at the body of your work, you're very multidisciplinary in terms of the type of output you have. Let's put it this way. When you are working on a particular, in a particular art form, let's say you're looking at publishing right now, is that all you can do or are you able to produce in sort of various different types, modes at the same time, mediums at the same time? I do get kind of uh, 
swallowed up by <laughs> by whatever like the the certain uh, so you so, go deep. yeah so publishing has been taking a, a lot of of my time but then um i do i do uh things also in parallel so for example uh in the past few months i've been working on uh an image for an album cover for an egyptian uh, musician and composer Maurice Lua So his uh, his new uh, album is coming out as both vinyl and uh, CD. Uh, wow, called, that's great! Uh, Our <laughs> vinyl and, and CD. Been, uh, it's amazing! It's an amazing! It's ama- It's an. He's an amazing musician, and uh, and I've been working with Maurice uh, over you know, across different albums of his. But this is something that I find interesting. For example, so how we work together on developing. The concept and and then the final image for this uh, album, and so and this is for example one thing I've been doing uh, parallel to the publishing thing, and uh, and now I'm developing a new work that is uh, still uh, the form is not clear yet, and this is something that is uh, maybe uh, what what kind of makes this multi multi form or multi discipline thing happen is that I do not start <laughs> knowing that this. What what final form it will take? Do you start with the subject? Exactly. I try to delay that decision as much as possible, which is difficult. It kind of makes things more difficult. Where do you start? What's the starting point? Is it the subject matter? Yes, I start. Uh, I think I start with a subject matter, um, uh, and then uh, I research. I have this kind of. Uh, Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to, what how to call it, but this curse or this blessing of spending lots of time researching. Sure. And uh, blessing for sure. At some point, I'm either exhausted by this research, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> or something crystallizes, and I say, okay, I'm going to focus on this and that, and uh, this and that. Lend they lend themselves to film, or they lend themselves to photographs, mm. or to uh, a publication. And uh, so this is how it happened. And like for Dear Animal, for example, this this uh, film, uh, it's it was preceded by a long uh, kind of research into the the start the, the subject I started with was why is there suddenly or what I feel was suddenly uh, an increased interest in animals, right? Why are animals appearing so often now in talk shows in <laughs> in newspaper uh, uh, kind of opinion pieces and in, in uh, paintings and film and and facebook uh, posts and i felt uh, this appearance this kind of uh, increased use of animals and across these different medias has a there is something to it uh, something is trying to appear <laughs> or people are trying to do, to say something through this form of the animal and After this kind of long, extensive research, uh, there came a point where, okay, I chose two of these, only two of these uh, things that I came across, like a short story by Haysam Luardeni and a series of Facebook posts by Azza Shaben. And I brought them together in a film. I mean, yeah. the film is brilliant. <laughs> I mean, and the sort of, I mean, the, I, I, this is the part that to me, I mean, there's this mischievous element that you bring in Um, and I think it's it's brilliant because you're sort of 
watch it, <laughs> you watch it. And every time you think, you know, you won't go there, you actually do. So I found <laughs> it, uh, I don't want to, and I don't want to, they say, I don't want to burn the, the film for those that are going to watch it. But I was watching it saying, no, she's not going to go there. And then you do. I'm like, oh my God, she did go there. <laughs> so I have to wow. say. So curious extremely... not to know what, what those, what, what those uh, things were that you thought, oh, I wouldn't go there. And then yeah, you did. There was a couple of them. I let uh, I let uh, the audience watch for themselves. And again, you know, that's, I think, the beauty of art, right? Every, everybody has a different reaction and maybe something that didn't occur to you or may have. But I've learned or not learned. I've learned to appreciate over the years that you experience it the way you do. And that's okay. And there's no right or wrong. But I very much enjoyed, uh, enjoyed watching it, I have to say. Just in terms of what's coming in the maybe in the future so you are again starting from kind of a subject matter and then uh, beyond working with uh, with um, your fellow musician um, and then you kind of wait and see what form it eventually takes have you felt that the last let's say two years now pandemic and all of that has that in any way shaped your thinking in terms of medium and what you want to put out there in the future or no uh i'm sure it does um so for me like uh, okay what what this kind of uh lockdown uh, has encouraged me to do is that it gave me more time mm. and i love that <laughs> <laughs> i love to have like uh, time without deadlines and then i can just wander off uh, following different kind of threads that lead nowhere so it was kind of an invitation to do that and uh i'm sure this Uh, will lead somewhere or it kind of opened up certain things that I would have never uh, watched or would have never had the time to read. So it kind of opened, opened these, uh, these um, threads. Um, the online uh, presence uh, thing, of course, I mean, um, Uh, one is kind of in, like the, the most uh, I was invited to throughout that year was, of course, like, you know, Zoom uh, presentations or discussions or uh, online reading groups and things like that. So um, I, I did, I, I do feel like uh, for Kefate, for example, we started realizing the importance of being available online, which is something yeah. we are working on. Um, There has been less uh, exhibitions, of course, or almost none. So uh, that kind of wheel of production has halted a little bit, which again, I welcome. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I felt like the world was going too fast <laughs> and uh, we need to maybe uh, slow down our processes a little bit. Uh, so that came in, uh, like, was welcomed. But uh, yeah, I think it, it, it kind of just opened uh, up more space to, uh, to uh, reflect on uh, what one has done or to, uh, to indulge in, uh, in uh, open-ended research. Uh, but it has not uh, yet made me feel like, oh, my, ne my next project is necessarily something that uh, can be shared online. Not necessarily. Okay. In the end, like, like I said... It hasn't like restricted your way of thinking about, about future production. Not necessarily. It hasn't restricted it. It maybe added a new venue that mm -hmm. is worth uh, thinking about. But it's like if I work uh, this long process of research and the end, uh, 
the, the form that comes to mind, the best form that comes to mind for this research is a sculpture, then it will be a sculpture. Okay, but enough. then there is the, the, the online thing that maybe something else, there's a different for, format that can be presented online or whatever, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Long, long answer. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. It's fascinating because, I mean, I think part of what you're saying also is that it could manifest itself differently, you know, and, and it could have different manifestations of the same art art matter, art piece, which is so interesting, right? It doesn't need to be in one form only. Two people yeah. could experience it differently. One could experience it in physical form, you know, as a, let's go with your idea as a sculpture, and then Hashim could be sitting somewhere else where he has no access to it and experience it in a very different form. I think that's very interesting, as opposed to necessarily just trying to do a rendition of whatever is physical or vice versa, right? Uh, well, Maha, that's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again. And honestly, thank you for making the time, for sharing with us all your, your views. Um, I know that a lot of artists are sometimes reluctant to have these conversations, especially with laymen like myself and, and sort of dissect further. So I really appreciate that you you went in and, uh, you know, had patience for all my ruminations and uh, misinterpretations possibly. But uh, I think that also no, speaks about the no, work I and the quality of the work you do. The effect it has honestly, not just on me and many others and um, inshallah, a lot more to come. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, honored by the invitation. And uh, no, all of your questions were spot on. They <laughs> opened, they touched on like some of the main questions, you know, that one uh, that I visit in my work. Thank you so much. Thank Have you, man. All the best. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirac Desai and our content director is Farah Sharif. If you're joining us for the first time, you can follow the show on any of your podcast apps like Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Anagami. You can also connect with us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE. We'll see you again in two weeks.